It's hard to believe that Isaac Watts uh, remained single all of his life. I mean, a guy like that, singing songs, writing poetry like that. Boy, imagine being, I mean, a woman being married to a guy like that. I mean, that would be just fantastic. It's, uh, I've got a new poem for you today, honey. And he'd, he'd have one for you, you know. And, uh, but he remained single all of his life. It's, uh, it's kind of a tragic story. You can read about it but uh, in church history. We're in Romans chapter 9, closing in on the end of the chapter, uh, starting at verse 24. Paul writes these words, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out from out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully And without delay, and Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your precious holy word. Lord, it takes us back, and we see the authority of your word in the Old Testament speaking to us loudly about our relationship to you. Lord, bless your word as it goes forward today. May it bring encouragement, hope, thanksgiving, assurance to the hearts of every believer here. And may it, may, may it be brought before them the openness of the door of grace that's wide open to all who will come and believe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming to the end of this really amazing chapter of Romans 9. We're not quite there yet, but we're almost there. If you've been with us, you know that uh, this whole chapter is filled with some of the deep, difficult doctrines of the Bible. Uh, kind of like the Trinity. That's one of those deep, difficult doctrines of the Bible. We could all probably give a definition for the Trinity and say we believe in the Trinity and we embrace the Trinity. We'd go to stake for the Trinity, but just sit down and meditate on it sometime and try and fathom the Trinity and you get lost. You get lost in your own mind and in our finite mind as we try and understand that, that infinite triune God. Well, the same thing is true with the sovereignty of God in salvation. I mean, most of us could give a definition for what it means for God to unconditionally choose or elect a certain people to salvation. Uh, I think we could go through that and give an explanation for that, hopefully now having gone through Romans 9. But try and understand that. Try and fully appreciate all the, there is to, to know about a sovereign God and man's personal responsibility to believe and trust in that, that God, and how all that works together in a way that we can fully comprehend. You say, well, it's just difficult. I mean, it could well be that uh, when Peter wrote Second Peter 3.15, he wrote about Paul. He wrote about his letters. He had something to say about the letters of Paul. Uh, he says, for example, in, in 2 Peter, "...and count the patience of our Lord as salvation." 
just as our beloved brother Paul, also who wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. I mean, here he is authenticating the, the very writings of Paul as Scripture. He says they were given to him by, by God, by, by revelation. But then verse 16 says this, There are some things in them that are hard to understand. This is Peter writing this. This, this is one of the apostles commenting on letters written by another apostle, and he says these things are hard There's things that he wrote that are hard to understand. In other words, I believe the Apostle Peter agreed that there's things that, yeah, we understand what they mean, but as far as understanding the depths of their meaning, we're we're mere men, and we don't really understand the depths of all the teachings of the Apostle Paul. And so the question is, what, what, what books was he referring to when he wrote that? What chapters of what books was he referring to when he wrote that? And I don't know, a little bit of sanctified imagination. I just think it well could be that he was referring to Romans chapter 9. I mean, there's things that Paul's writing that are difficult to understand. And if you're here and you've been sitting here listening for several weeks, this wonderful doctrine explained, you, you might be scratching your head and saying, I'm not sure I fully understand. These are hard truths. And the question is, are they hard? Yes. But they're in Scripture. And they're, not, they're hard, but they're not confusing. They're hard, but they're written to be clear. Clear enough where every one of us should be able to give a definition for unconditional election. The issue is, are we going to believe it, trust it, because God said it? And are we going to embrace it in such a way that we have all eternity to figure out how it all works out? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with not fully understanding all there is to know. I mean, that's why, for example, Paul throughout chapter 9 was dealing with one objection after another because he was listening to those people who were reading Romans 9 and as he was reading through, he was hearing the people read Romans 9. Yeah, but Paul, what about this? What about this? What about this? So he's dealing with this objection, that objection, this objection. And finally he stopped dealing with any objection. He said, listen, I'm going to rebuke you. This is what the Bible says. This is what God has revealed. And therefore, I rebuke you because you're a mere man. And who are you, O man? Who are you, O man, to question God? Any more than the clay can question the potter. So finally, he had to raise that rebuke in verse 20. We saw that. And somehow, in God's economy, sovereign election meshes perfectly with man's responsibility to believe and repent and come to Christ. Whether you can fully understand that or not, in God's economy, it perfectly meshes. Rather than embracing uh, the truth uh, and and rejecting the truth, we're, we're to embrace it in faith. Because if you don't, what happens is the second part of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16 says, "...which the ignorant and unshaken twist to their own destruction..." as they do other scriptures. And so you can come to a chapter like chapter 9, you can come to the wonderful doctrine of, just, of, of uh, sovereign, unconditional election, and you can argue and twist and, and try and make it say what you want it to say, and Peter's warning us, yeah, you can do so. A lot of people do that. But they do it to their own destruction, uh, as they do other scriptures. 
And so you can see from the chapter how all of a sudden you can twist it and make God unrighteous. And you can twist it and make God unjust or uh, make God in, in the image of man because you want him to be like you. And in the process, end up twisting the scripture to your own destruction. Now, you remember how the chapter opened up at the very beginning? What was the big question we were looking at there? How does Paul explain Jewish unbelief? How do you you explain that, Paul? The Messiah came, and if he's the Messiah, why is it all the Jews that had the promise? The promises of God, why didn't they all just flock to Christ, flock to their Messiah? How is it that the Jews have been rejecting the gospel of Jesus and why is it the Gentiles seem to be the ones who are believing in the Messiah? The promises of God were made to the Jews, not the Gentiles. And if the elect were a spiritual Israel rather than a physical Israel, if the elect was, was a group of Jews chosen by God, then what about the Gentiles? How did they get on board? Why did you and me and those of us who are Gentiles in this room who profess faith in Christ, how come we're brought in? I mean, if the promises were made to the Jews, what about us? How did we get on board? And then what about the Jews? I mean, you have this big group of Jews, the seed. And then you have, within the seed, you have a spiritual Israel. And God passed over much of Israel at that time. And what Paul wants to see in this, in this passage today is this. None of this should be of any... Uh, Nothing new to, to the, the reader of, of Romans. This is nothing new. He wants you to know that. This isn't like I'm springing something out of the box. This was predicted. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. Both the coming of the Gentiles and also the remnant who would be saved and called by, by grace. So what I'm going to do is break this passage I just read down into two, two sections. One is God's calling of the Gentiles. It was prophesied in Hosea, verses 24 to 26, and then it followed by God's calling of the elect Israel, prophesied in the, in the book of Isaiah, uh, and we're going to see that in uh, verses 27 and 29. And I'll try and draw some practical applications from those at the end. But first of all, look, let's look at this passage in Romans 9, starting at verse 24. And look, let's look at God's calling of the Gentiles. I mean, to a Jew reading Romans 9, they shouldn't be surprised. I mean, if they're looking around, why is it all these Gentiles are coming to Christ? They shouldn't be surprised. Because, well, uh, let me bring it into context here. If you look at your passage there, in, uh, starting at verse 6, I think verse 6 is where we pick up then Paul kind of goes into parentheses, and then at verse, verse 24, we're going to see that he's going to connect those two together, 6 and 24 being one continuous thought. Verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, we've seen this. In other words, uh, not all the physical descendants of Abraham are, in fact, called by God or elected or chosen by God. Uh, it's not by birth. Only the elect, that is those whom God chose within Israel, will be saved. We're going to see only a a remnant he's going to be talking about here in a minute. And then you connect that verse with verse 24 where he picks up dot, 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 even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. 
So, but, but that's not all. Not only did he have a remnant within, within Israel, that's not all. Look, look at Even us whom he has called. We have to look at every one of those words to understand the fullness of its meaning. For even us, who, who are the us? Whom he has called. Who's, who's the he? Well, the us would be those whom God has chosen to salvation. He explains it not from the Jews only, but also who? The Gentiles. Us. And we see that Paul, what Paul is saying here, God's elect is bigger. Follow this now. God's elect is bigger than a subgroup of physical Israel. Does that make sense? In other words, rather than the remnant of Israel, that's all there is that's going to be saved. God had a bigger plan, and he's actually electing a bigger group of people. And from the Jews only, no, but also from the Gentiles. And so he has an elect among us, all the people of the world, outside of Israel. This is you and me. This is most of us in this room. Uh, The Gentiles are also included. And they've always been included. He says, don't be surprised. This is nothing new. I know the Jews, when they saw this and the Messiah came, they thought they were the only one. They were the promised ones of God. Now they see all these these Gentiles coming to Christ. Must have shocked them. What's going on? This can't be the Messiah. And Paul's saying, it's nothing new. Let me take you back to the Old Testament. Let me show you where this is in Scripture. Everything's going perfectly according to God's plan. And he says, as indeed he says in Hosea. Now, verse 25. Who is Paul referring to as the he? Even as indeed he says in Hosea. He says, it's God, right? God speaking through the prophet Hosea. God the Father is the he. And notice that he says, this is also interesting, is, is in the present tense. You know, you would have thought he might have said, well, as indeed he said in Hosea. But he didn't say past tense. This is present tense, active. This is God is saying now. And so he spoke through God the Father, spoke through Isaiah. And now we see he's still speaking to us today through Isaiah. And he's speaking to us even today, you know, beside the time when, when Paul wrote, he's speaking us right now through the prophet Hosea. The Bible's alive, it's speaking to us, and it's not locked in time and space, and so today it's speaking to us. Now, how many of you are familiar with the backstory of, of uh, Hosea? It's not a very big book in the Bible, is it? You know, I mean, how, if, if we had a sword drill, how quickly could you turn to Hosea? We don't have to. I know, I was just wondering. You know, he asked, well, where is that book? I know it's somewhere in the Old Testament, right? Well, you look through your Bible and you see Hosea. You're going to see it's the first in line with all the minor prophets. So it's the first of the minor prophets. So it follows right after the last major prophet, who is Ezekiel. Is that where it goes? Is Ezekiel Hosea? Huh? Daniel. Daniel, yeah. Right after Daniel. And who was Hosea? You remember why they're called the minor prophets? Because they're less important? No. They're minor prophets because they're very small in size. And no less, no less in truth. So who was Hosea? He was a prophet. 
uh, when, the, when the kingdom was divided, uh, he spoke in the 8th century B.C. Uh, he was sent to prophesy by God the Father to Israel. And that were 800 years before the birth of Christ. Think about this. We're way back. And he was sent by God to prophesy to a nation that at that time it appeared they were okay on the outside, but they were rotting on the inside. I mean, they were still at a point where they, they had power. They were still at a point where they had authority uh, as a nation. But in, inwardly, in the heart of the nation, it was rotting from immorality. And this is the issue that's being dealt with here. The spiritual heart of the kingdom, the, the, the sinful seed of decay was taking root in the, in the nation, and it was about ready to implode or to, 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 to collapse from within by judgment. So it'd be like today. I mean, it'd be like having a beautiful house, and it has all the veneer on the outside, and boy, the street appeal is great. But inside, you know, inside the walls are termites, just eating it away. And you can go online and find beautiful houses that one day just, there's pictures of them, collapse. Not, not because they're not beautiful and they have a wonderful veneer, but because they're just rotting away interiorly by termites. And that's exactly what was happening in Israel at the time Hosea was, was prophesying. This is what he was addressing, is the heart of the people. Uh, it's not a picture that's much unlike our own nation today. Outwardly, I would say us as a people in America, we're, we're in still the remnant of or the trail end of the glory days as a nation. We're a strong nation. We might be one of the strongest nations in the world. We have our missiles. We have our might. But there's something wrong with the inward heart of this nation. And it's being eaten away by immorality. Do you realize that? And it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's corroding from the inside out. And so the fall of this nation could easily come, not necessarily from outside missiles, but inward collapse of the heart of the people where immorality reigns, moral decay takes over, and the whole house falls apart. So what our enemies might not be able to do from the outside could easily take place from the inside out. Unless there's a turning away. Unless there's a turning from sin to the living God. Uh, when Hosea penned this short book, on Israel's horizon were the Assyrians. And they're coming, they're breathing down the neck of Israel. And judgment's coming upon Israel. And they're coming at the hand of, of Assyria. And so the warning goes out by the prophet. Now it's interesting, this is an interesting story of how this, how this prophecy went out. You know, the name Hosea simply means salvation. And he was married to a woman whose name was Gomer. Yeah, that should have been his first warning right there. Never marry a woman named Gomer, right? I mean, that's... Uh, wait, there's no Gomers here, are there? No. But it was going to be a spiritual lesson, a prophetic lesson, that would come by way of his life. God said, you go marry Gomer... And I want your marriage to be an example. They're going to look at your marriage, and they're going to learn about me, and they're going to learn about Israel. And so, so what happens to you experientially is going to be a warning, of prophetic warning to the, to the people. So what kind of a person was Gomer? Well, she was an unfaithful wife. She'd given over to whoredom. 
She uh, slept around town, left her husband. Uh, that's the PG version. You can read the regular version in your Bibles. Her sin impacted her offspring. Hosea 2.4 says, Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are the children of whoredom. Gomer had three children, Jezreel, Lo-Rumama, and Lo-Ami. And the last two children mentioned really carry with it the whole meaning of the prophecy and the meaning of even what we're looking at here in Romans chapter 9. Lo-Rumama simply means not my loved one. Imagine naming your child that. You're not my loved one. And Loami, you're not my people. And so that was to be a picture to the, to the nation. And most of you know the story. Instead of divorcing his wife, who was unfaithful and adulterous, she went around, he went around to her love nest. And as he went to her love nest, he found that she had needs. Uh, the, the longer she slept around, the, the lower she got and the more needs she had in the area of food and clothing. Can you imagine as a husband then going out and finding your wife in, in the arms of another man and seeing that she didn't have her needs taken care of and you came and brought those needs to her out of a heart of love to an unfaithful wife? We even got to the point where ultimately she ends up on the auction block and she's being sold off to be used as property for somebody. And he shows up, and he's there to bid on his wife. I bid, I bid, I bid. And he bid right up till he purchased his wife back. And to a rightful place of, of divine personal affection. And he says, there's a picture of God's relationship to his people. They're unfaithful. They're adulterers. Adulterers. They are uh, given over to strange gods. And the God of, that created them, that chose them, that entered in a covenant with them, He still loves them. He goes after them. And He forgives them. And restores them. I mean, that's the story of Hosea. Lo Rama. Not my loved one. Then becomes, who? My loved one. And lo, Ami, not my people, but they become his people. And this is the imagery that Paul is drawing from here to help us see God the Father reaching out and calling and electing and calling those who are Gentiles. Isaiah 2.23 says, And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will not say to, I will not, say to not my people, you are my people. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 9, verse 25. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. Do you see where this came from? Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Now just for note, notation purposes, what Paul is doing, for some reason, he's reversing the order that's found over in Hosea. Hosea starts off with, first of all, I will have mercy, line A, I will have mercy on, and, uh, and on no mercy. Then line B is, I will say to not my people, you are my people. 
And what Romans does, what Paul does in Romans is he, re, he flips those two upside down. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. That's see, line B becomes line A in Romans. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. The other interesting thing is this, is that uh, comparing and contrasting Hosea with Romans, Hosea uses the word, I will say to my people, you are my people. In Romans, Paul instead says, I will call. It's not I'm just going to say, say that you are. I'm going to call these people, these Gentiles, to be my people. And, of course, we looked at effectual calling a few weeks ago. That is, when God calls and He summons the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel goes out, what happens? People get saved, right? They, they come. He calls and they come and He saves them. So compare Hosea with Paul's quote to the Romans, and uh, Hosea is describing here Gomer's sin, his her punishment and restoration, and here we see that was carried over into Israel as well, and now Paul's going to bring that into the Gentiles. Now this is kind of hard to understand. Clearly in Hosea, Paul is describing the restoration of the Jews. It's all about the Jews in Hosea. But he's using that as his proof text for showing that instead what he's doing here is God, like Hosea, is is calling uh, the Gentiles into into salvation. And it's also interesting that Peter does the same thing. 1 Peter 2.9. He says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and marvelous light. Once, Peter writes the same thing, once you were a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, pulling from the same imagery from Hosea. So how is it, this is kind of a, just a question, why is it or how is it that Paul would, would and Peter would, would take a passage from Hosea in the Old Testament and change a meaning? You see how he changed the meaning? It was all about the Jews being restored. And they're, using, they're both using it as a proof text for God what? Calling the Gentiles to salvation. And the answer is, this this really isn't a problem at all, as it might appear. Because you see, both the Jews and the Gentiles stood in the same position before God. And therefore, the same principle of restoration applies. Whether God is restoring His divine favor to Israel, or to the conversion of the Gentiles, or even both, the cause or the source of the restoration is the sovereign choice of Almighty God. And that's the focus of this passage. And yet God has the divine authority to call both of them to His people. You can see the whole principle of sovereign grace here. Those who are not my people, God says, I will call my people. And those who are not my loved ones, I will call my loved ones. Whether Jew or Gentile, this is God's prerogative This is God's will, and this is God's way of choosing a people unto himself. Uh, Verse 26, And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, 
There they will be called sons of the living God. Now, if you take this back to Hosea, this would be their place of exile, when they're hauled off into exile. The very place where the Jews were, were held off and taken off into exile, it was said to them, you are not my people, and you will, you will be called sons of the living God. And, and so, but what about, how does this apply to Gentiles? What is the very place where God speaks to us and calls us? This is about Gentiles. The very place where it is said to them, the Gentiles, you are not my people, but they will be called the sons of the living God. You know, I I looked at all the views on that, and I I came away with understanding that it seems that what Paul is saying here is at that very place, Gentile, where God saved you, when you were off in exile, so to speak, separated from God, that place out there, might have been in church, might have been at home, might have been in your car driving home from church, I mean, who knows? It could have been in, in, on the radio, hearing the radio. I talked to a man recently who it was in jail. He was off in jail, and, and someone brought, another inmate brought the gospel to him, and he was saved in jail, wherever that place was. For Mary and myself, it was in the living room of our house, and there the gospel came to us, and there we bowed our knees around the couch, and we tr- asked God to save us and forgive us of our sins. That was the very place where it said to them, you are not my people, but it was said to them, you are not my people, but you, you were called to be the son of the living God. We weren't God's people, but he called us and made us the son of the living God. So we see from Hosea that God promised to call out a people from all the nations of the world, not just from within Israel. And the world... Uh, in the world uh, around us, every nation, every tongue, every color, every race, every location, every continent they live on, uh, God has a people that were chosen before the foundation of the world, whom He's calling to Himself to be saved. People like you and people like me, wherever we were when the call came out to us to trust in Christ. I mean, it must have been a surprise for the Jews to imagine yourself being a loyal, honest Jew back during the day of Christ. The Messiah comes, and you look around, and all these Gentiles are coming to Jesus. What in the world would you think? What they should have thought is, look at the grace of God and the glorious, oh, look what Hosea said. Oh, I forgot about Hosea. And when the fullness of time came, Christ was born, he sacrificed himself on the cross, And the doors of mercy were swung wide open. The gospel went out. And many, many of the the Gentiles who who were chosen by God, who were now called to be in his kingdom. If God's going to call Gentiles to be his people who are not his people, what about the Jews? What about that, that group within the group? And there we see... The second part of this passage is the call of the Jews in the book of Isaiah. So Paul goes on. Now he's going to quote. First he quoted Hosea, and now he's quoting Isaiah in support of the truth that God has a remnant, a people that he's still saving. He hasn't forgotten the Jews totally. That, uh, so now he talks about Isaiah's, in Isaiah God's calling of the Jews. 
And here he's quoting back into Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 to 23. Paul's purpose is to establish the truth that God is calling his vessels of mercy from among the Jews. Look at verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So here, here we have from Isaiah a prophecy. Uh, remember the promise made to Abraham, your, your sons are going to be like what? The, the sand and the sea, innumerable. And that was true. And we see the, the Jews grew and by the millions. The nation which God promised uh, there would be numerous, uh, he wasn't done with. And so when they were sent off into captivity, a remnant came back. He wasn't done with, that, with, it, with them. But Isaiah prophesies, carrying it with a spiritual fulfillment as well. And the spiritual fulfillment is this. God has a seed, and there's many Jews as there are sands in the sea. But from all of that group, there's another group called a remnant that I have chosen to be saved. And they're going to be the spiritual seed. And that brings in the word remnant, verse 27b. Only a remnant of them will be saved. How many of you have had new carpeting put in and you had a remnant left over? That's, that's what a remnant is. You know, the, the installer comes out with 12-foot rolls and they you know, mark it off on your, on your grass out in front of your house and, and they're cutting it all up and fitting it into the rooms and laying it around. And pretty soon you get all done and there's still a little bit left on, on the roll. Maybe it's still a little bit left over here, a piece over here that could fit in someone's small room somewhere. And so there's a remnant. You can go to carpet stores and buy cheap, you know, remnants, that, that which is not used. And that's the imagery that you have for Israel. You've got the, the 12-foot rolls of Israel, but yet when God's done, the ones He's actually going to call, the ones He's going he's to choose before the foundation of the world, are the remnant, the ones that are left over from His judgment and from from what he's doing with his people. They're the leftovers. A small group of Jews within the big group of Jews. And this is what was going, on, was going to happen to the Jews. Even though God had fulfilled his promise to Abraham, so that Paul would now say that the number of the Jews was... Number, they are the number as a number of grains of sand, but most are rejected. Judgment has come, and a remnant will be saved. What a surprise to the Jews. When the Messiah comes, only a remnant shall enter into the kingdom of God. What a sobering thought if you were a Jew. Look at 28. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. This is judgment. It's a judicial decree. But a remnant will be saved. Just in verse 29, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. And so if, if it hadn't been for the remnant, God would have come in, wiped out all the Jews, and they would no more. No more Jews. Promises came to an end. But here Paul cites a prediction made by Isaiah in one nine. And there's hope, hope of the off, a hope for the remnant. 
Now, that's, that's kind of a trip through the Old Testament, Hosea, Isaiah. Let me see if I can draw a few practical applications for us from this passage. And, and really the question is this, how do, how do we respond to such a grand doctrine as God's sovereign election? What should your heart attitude be towards such a truth? If you're sitting here today as a Christian, and you're the recipient of God's grace, you're the one that before the foundation of the world, God chose to be saved, and then in time and space, He called you with an effectual calling, and you heard the call, and you believed, and you're here today with all of your sins forgiven. You have the hope of everlasting life. What should your heart attitude be to such a wondrous, glorious doctrine as that? I mean, this doctrine isn't given to confuse us. This truth about election is not given to, for us to sit around and question God. This doctrine is not given to upset us. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for this gospel. I, I, I believe that, that election should bring hope to us. Election should bring assurance to you as a Christian, knowing that the God who sovereignly chose you is the God who's not going to let you go from the grip of His grace. But the one area that I think as we worship God this morning that we ought to be reminded of, I, I believe it should stir within all of our hearts a sense of thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God for what He's done because we could have never, ever done this ourselves. Uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We love sin. We were slaves to sin. We couldn't muster up enough faith to believe in God even if we wanted to. And yet God, in His eternal kindness, came down and saved us. He, he, he chose us. He saved us. He gave us faith. And, and by His grace, you came, you heard the call, and you believe. That should stir up in your heart, believer, eternal thanksgiving and eternal praise. Um, thank you, God. Thank you, God. I mean, I bow before you. I put my face in the ground before you. Oh, God, for showing mercy on me who, who needed mercy. And there was nothing I could do to bring mercy myself. And you've chosen me before the foundation of the world. I thank you, God, for all that you've done. And you've done so to, dis to display your glory, for your good, for your, for, for your goodness, by not bringing your wrath upon me. Thank you, God, Father. Thank you. That should be our heart. As we gather around the Lord's table in a few minutes, may God stir up remembrance of this grace, and may he stir up a heart of thanksgiving in all of us, for what each one of these elements represent. And secondly, I believe there's an application here in the area of missions. Uh, missions of the church. You think, well, election, sovereignty of God, and missions, those two are the opposite of each other. In fact, we're, we're told that if you believe in election, you're, you're, not, you're not very missions-minded. You don't believe in evangelism. You're just going to sit around and let God save whom He's going to save. Well, I, th I think it's just the opposite of that. I really do. It's just the opposite. In fact, I, I believe those of us who have been saved and forgiven by much, and we see the command to go and to preach the gospel, we're going to see that in Romans chapter 10. 
uh, throughout the whole world, then we realize that sovereign grace is, is, like, is like the gas thrown on that. And that even makes us want to go out even more because God has done a work and we want to go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, God has His elect around the world. Every continent, every language, every color, every group of people, there's people that God is saving. I mean, God has swung the gates of mercy wide open, and He is saving people everywhere. And if, you, if you're not reading about what He's doing in other parts of the world, I would encourage you to start reading about that because it's exciting to see the work He's doing in Africa, where Morungi has planted how many churches, brother? 53. One church in Kenya planting 53 churches in that country. I mean, the gospel's going out. People are being saved. The, the mercy of the gates are wide open, and many are coming to Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world. I mean, I don't know about you. I, I want to be part of that. I want to see what God is doing, not only in our own community, in our own nation, but the four corners of the world. Oh, and here in Cody, there's, there's people that God is saving. We have a mission across America. We have a mission in Africa, China. Everywhere you go, there, there, there's God's people. There, there are the Gentiles. And we need to bring the gospel with great enthusiasm. And then let me just close by bringing a personal message to anyone here without Christ this morning. You know, it's so easy to go through a chapter like 9 and go, oh, where am I? Who am I? Am I chosen? Am I not chosen? Uh, is there anything I can do about it? Uh, am I just going to have to wait and see where I spend eternity because it's all up to God? Well, the message to you from Scripture is, is very clear and short. It's simply this, that God has called you to come to Him because His Son has done all the work. And so you're, you're simply called by God. And, and so I'm standing up here as, as a messenger of God, bringing you the words of Hosea, bringing you the words of Isaiah, bringing you the words of the Apostle Paul, ultimately the word of God. There's a Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. And He entered this world more than 2,000 years ago. And they picked up the spikes and they drove them into his hands and they nailed him to a cross and the blood dripped from the cross and it went down into the sand. A spear went into his side. More water and blood poured out. He was taking upon himself the very wrath of God on behalf of everyone he came to save. And in that message, that good news of Christ, is that anyone who will believe in him not only will be forgiven, but His righteousness, the Son of God, will be imputed and applied to him, them to have right standing with God and have the gift of everlasting life. Don't get lost and figure out, am I you know, chosen or not chosen? That's not the question. Are you believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you turning from your sin? Because only those who trust in Christ who are turning from their sins are those who will be saved. And they'll be counted amongst the elect. Every one of them will be counted amongst the elect. And I hope you see a God who, who swings the door wide open, His mercy, His love, His grace, to a people, the Gentiles of the world, which most of us are. May today be the day you would trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. And so, Father, we close there today. And 
Thank you, Lord, for taking us back into history, 800 years before the birth of Christ, just to see promises that were made then, that were kept by you, that are being reiterated today and brought into our hearing. Lord, may we have hope, may we have assurance, may there be some here today who have life, because today would be the day they would trust in Jesus alone as their Savior and Lord. Amen.